0: Hello, and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Ahir Shah. Austerity. To many of us, it's a word we now most associate with David Cameron and George Osborne, a policy decision taken in the name of sound public finances that had disastrous effects on so many without seeming even to fulfill its stated aims. But what if by taking these stated aims at face value, we've been getting austerity dangerously wrong? This question is part of the basis of a new book. The Capital Order, How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way to Fascism by Clara Maté, Associate Professor of Economics at the New School for Social Research. It's a pleasure to be joined by her now. Professor Mattei welcome to The Bunker.
1: I'm so glad to be here. On
0: conventional understanding, austerity is about things like reducing debt, ensuring sustainable public finances, and the fact that Austerity programs that have been wheeled out worldwide haven't actually fixed these problems, makes the repeated employment of them often seem like a kind of madness. But you ask us to consider austerity not as a tool necessarily for just reducing debt or what have you, these stated aims, but as something else. Now, what in your mind is austerity?
1: Thank you so much. Yes, the thesis of the capital order is that if we repoliticize austerity and avoid looking at it merely as a technical tool to manage the economy and instead understand it as a political project that has specific aims, we understand that there is method in this supposed madness of this constant repetition of these Economic policies, namely interest rate hikes, cuts in the social budget, privatization, labor deregulation, and so forth, that don't seem to be achieving their stated goals of increasing economic growth and paying back the debt, but they do achieve something much deeper. And here is the title of the book, The Capital Order. Capital, in this sense, is understood as a social relation that governs our society today, meaning the fact that we are all used to going to work in return for a low wage and often in precarious conditions. It is this social relation that governs the society that is the basis for any economic growth in a capitalist economy.
0: It was interesting, the way that you wrote about considering austerity from this different angle reminded me a lot of when, particularly during the Truss and Quartet governments, people were talking about sort of quote unquote trickle down economics and being like, but don't they understand it never actually even trickles down? And it's like, well, yes, of course they understand that. And beyond your extremely credulous attitude when you say that, like what makes you think that they even want it to trickle down? So it's a, it's an interesting way of flipping the sort of stated aims versus actual aims that you have.
1: Absolutely. And the point here is also to realize that it's in the very economic models that this necessity is stated in the sense that the economic models that ruling experts use today are of a very specific type. They come from a paradigm that was born uh, at the end. Of the uh, of the 1900s, and it was diffused exactly in the years that the capital order looks at, which are the 1920s, and it's a it, there are models in which. The worker loses agency as the main engine of the economic machine, and instead it is the saver entrepreneur who takes the lead, who is understood as the agent who is uh, responsible for guiding society for the good of the whole. So it's obvious here that if these are the models that uh, technocrats in power at the Fed or at the Treasury have in mind then it becomes necessary that a trickle down is not really the purpose. The purpose here is actually to give more incentives to these, this ruling elite, right? Because that's exactly the idea by which only if we incentivize by regressive taxation, for example, which is a very important kernel of austerity policies, the fact that the rich pay, in relative terms, much fewer taxes than the poor. And this has gotten to a level by which, in the United States, The country's richest 400 families pay a lower overall tax rate than any other income group. So and of course, we know that a regressive taxation is a trend in the UK as well as many other places in the world.
0: Now, when you write this sort of like history of austerity as an idea and a thing that the governments put into practice, you take as your case studies Britain and Italy, first sort of during and then in the aftermath of the First World War. And now, uh, why did you choose uh, these countries at this time?
1: Thank you. Yes. The aim of the capital order is to deeply understand critically the logic of austerity today by looking at the episode of austerity's origins after the first world war so the focus of the capital order is the 1920s and specifically i decide to focus on two countries in the hub of western europe great britain and italy and the reason for focusing on these countries is not that austerity was not applied elsewhere in fact in the 1920s exactly a century ago just as we're seeing now, by the way, austerity was applied quite globally, starting from the United States. Yet the reason why I decide to tell a story that looks at the parallel processes in Italy and Britain, it is because they represent supposedly very far apart social institutional settings and also very far apart ideologies. Why? Because we have the cradle of liberal parliamentary democracy great britain right the most advanced capitalist empire after the first world war compared with italy which was not only a more backward economic uh, economically as a country but it was also the birthplace of fascism benito mussolini came to power in october of 1922 basically exactly hundred years ago and The reality here is that if we focus on austerity as the main objective of experts and governments in the 1920s, we see that our common sense understanding of the fact that liberalism and fascism are so distant as worlds, both institutionally and ideologically, well, this common sense belief False, because actually, what you see is that the uh, treatment that the Treasury and the Bank of England gave to their citizens in the 1920s was really the same as the one that was provided by Mussolini's authoritarian government and the experts in in power who were supporting him.
0: Is it your view? And I don't want to put words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong. But my understanding of it was that you sort of view. The First World War, as this, this tremendous social upheaval, and like in all forms of social upheaval, things that were once sort of claimed to be or thought to be impossible suddenly became possible. There was a massive change in the ideas that people had about their relationship to the state and the state's relationship to them. And then in the aftermath of the war, in order to preserve the sort of prevailing order of the status quo or have you You had. On the one hand, there were certain things that were carrots, I suppose. You had like the sort of representation of the People's Act, expansion of the suffrage in 1918, 1928 uh, and things. And austerity became the stick that was then also put in place to preserve this uh, sort of prevailing social order or status quo to avoid that being overthrown.
1: Absolutely, that's basically the story I tell, and this is why I think to understand what's going on still today, it's so important to look at the past because you really see how, in that moment in which capitalism was confronting its gravest existential crisis, so it was more than just an economic downturn, it was really a political upheaval, um a political break of consensus that was triggered by the first world War with the first world war un- the unimaginable happened in terms of the state taking on novel roles in the economy. And in this sense, really broadening the imagination of the common citizens as to what was actually possible in terms of economic reforms. And not just economic reforms in the sense of just increased social expenditures, which is something that, of course, was going on. And I have the entire chapter two that looks at all of the very sophisticated reconstructionist proposals for deep emancipation of uh, citizens in Britain with the Ministry of Reconstruction. After they had fought for the war, the idea was that, well, now is the time of home fit for heroes, right? That was the slogan of someone like David Lloyd George who was at the head of the British government. So, of course, very sophisticated understanding of, well, the birth of the welfare state, so uh, national health care, public education, adult education, places to actually rear children in common so as to take off the burden for women, all these very advanced proposals. But it was even more than that. And that historical moment, really what happened, and this is what chapter three and four of the Capital order dig into is that the majority of British and Italian citizens were demanding a novel basis for the economy. And this meant really overcoming wage relations and private property of the means of production, which are the two basic pillars of capitalism as a socioeconomic system. So in that moment, through a variety of experiments that I look at, from guild socialism to self-management of workers through nationalization of coal, which was the main industry in Britain, for example, through the Sankey Committee, which was a big deal in 1919 in Britain, all the way to really understanding of self-governance through workers' councils that would actually defeat the representative state in the name of a state sprouting out of democratic self-governance of production distribution. Well, in this moment of general Contestation of laissez faire and of capitalism, it's the moment in which austerity really was fundamental in order to preserve our society up to this moment. It was in that moment in which experts had to tell people no, 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 you think you can have a say in how to run the economy. Well, we're sorry. We are the only ones who are entitled to run the economy, and we are going to run it according to austerity measures that have as a fundamental motto, produce more and consume less for the majority, right? So uh, the idea was that citizens were living beyond their means, that we should all sacrifice in the name of the common good. And of course, in the name of the common good was to really not show the fact that really what was happening was, of course, to re- Furbish the conditions for greater profits and lower wages. But it was really in this moment that the anti-democratic thrust of austerity, the fact that a big kernel of austerity as a project is that of de-democratizing any economic decision, was made clear in the 1920s. And in Britain, this took the form of the crusade for independent central banks. The fact that still today, the Bank of England with the Fed and the ECB can really decide on interest rate hikes without asking anyone of, of, of the electorate, and they just go out according to their models, is because central bank independence was fought for as an institution. It was not just fought for in Britain in a moment in which the Labour Party, for example, wanted to nationalize the Bank of England. Uh, Ralph Hawtree was instead saying, "We need a bank that is able to never regret, never apologize, and never explain." This is really the crux of monetary management according to an austerity agenda. Well, this it, central bank independence in those years were actually also exported around the globe. The uh, protagonists of my story, who are these technocrats at the Treasury, British Treasury, went to Brazil, went to India, all with the same template of. Let's make sure people have no say in how we run our economy.
0: I would would say there's there's also a thing of like, what do you say, like produce more, consume less and everything like is quite a a sort of stakhanovite attitude in many ways. So I I wonder the extent to which this is less a a capitalist thing and more just a general authoritarian thing. Right. Like it feels like a lot of these things can also be read over to societies like the USSR and the way that uh, those sort of treated sort of people in general versus the sort of rarefied small committees that ended up running things
1: yes so that is a very important point is the fact that actually ultimately i think the reason why still today we think that capitalism is kind of somehow some form of the best we can do is because austerity also bit in places like the ussr after uh, 1922 uh, even Lenin basically had to accept an austerity framework in order to participate in global capitalist competition. Right. So um, I would say that maybe more than it's something that is true in general, also in non-capitalist societies, I would say that it's true in.
0: Particularly authoritarian. World,
1: yeah. And I would say it's true in a world in which capitalism is dominant. So even in settings, let's say Cuba, the USSR, in which supposedly China, in which supposedly we're not in a capitalist economy, what you see is that these are form of state authoritarianism that also become more authoritarian by the need of actually keeping up the competition of a capitalist global economy, if that makes sense. So in a way, these societies that we understand as alternatives are not fundamentally alternatives if we see that also in these settings, austerity is implemented by the state and their technocrats. So this was really also the case in the USSR because the fundamental original project of the soviets running the economy so of actual economic democracy coming from below coming stemming out of councils that were democratically deciding on production distribution here what we see is (laughs) that this original understanding of the soviets died quite fast in the soviet union and we had instead a quite an authoritarian society that was very far from the original understanding of what an alternative to capitalism would be in in the idea of economic democracy. The Soviet Union was definitely not an economic democratic setting. And for this reason, it also acquired austerity as part of its way of running the state and its economy. Particularly
0: when you talk about sort of history changing through wars and stuff, I was reminded of Piketty's capital in the 21st century and looking at that century as basically ever-increasing inequality punctuated by two gigantic total wars. Now, so I'm sure that you and I, like our listeners, are not particularly keen either on rampant inequality or total wars. So in, in the present day, taking these lessons that you've sort of tried to draw from the history of austerity Is there another path that could be walked sort of in the present day and into the future?
1: That's a very ambitious question. I think the message of the capital order is a message of hope. In being able to be critical and really disillusioned about what's going on today, the idea here is that by pointing out how capital as the social relation that governs us all needs constant protection, this means that it's not a natural fact, a given that we just have to accept. So once we realize that austerity policies, interest rate hikes, cuts in the budget, are meant to uh, protect capital we also realize that we could in fact be living in a different society if we were able to in fact achieve a greater economic democracy and in this sense be all participants in the fundamental production of resources in our society and part of the austerity success is have us all think that oh you know that's that's utopia there could be no other way this is just the best and only possible one. But actually, I think by taking seriously some experiments that I dug out from 1919, 1920, and looking at what's going on today uh, in a more curious way, we see that there are things always going on. Um, There are council movements around the globe that try to really um, also take on seriously the ecological dimension and challenge that we're all facing. And there are also uh, different forms of unions that are stemming up. So I think the point here is that once we really understand how austerity is cardinal to the functioning of our socioeconomic system, we can also see how it is uh, wielded to exclude alternatives that, though, are never eliminated completely. And there's always people who are involved. In these types of projects for economic democracy. And I think this is very clear also today, looking at what's going on in Britain at the present moment, is that um, inflation is triggering much greater social unrest and a breakdown of consensus. And so people are mobilizing. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you guys living there see it on on your own skins what it means if nurses go on strike and uh, there's a serious situation in which there's no one there to help you get cured. And these nurses going on strike clearly have been saying that they are forced to strike because there is the structural defunding of the NHS that is making their job impossible. So in this moment of this demands for a different way forward, of course, there's no better recipe on the part of the leading technocrats to constantly increase interest rates and cuts the budget, like the Chancellor Hunt is doing at present, right? Because this is the immediate reaction to demands for social change. Now, once we realize how there is this game of protecting capital through economic coercion induced by austerity, I think people can really use the capital order, this book, to gain uh, empowerment by understanding the logic that they Can ultimately defeat because the message of the book is that capitalism is constructed socially by collective action and protected socially by collective action. This is why we need collective counteraction in order to construct something different.
0: I want to end by asking a question about Britain as things sort of stand in 2022. And looking back at the sweep of history that uh, you cover and comparing us to a century ago now when these sort of Architects of austerity and stuff were uh, first spreading their ideas. And we've had in that century a uh, transformation from. Largely manufacturing economy to a largely service-based economy. We have gone from a period of limited to universal suffrage. We have seen an explosion in the amount that the state does and uh, the, the the amount that it provides, even if at the moment it is failing in many ways to mm-hmm. provide those things. The the sort of list of duties that the state has to its citizens is far, far longer than it was in 1922. We live in a period of far, far greater, well, certainly in absolute terms, uh, if if not in relative uh, scales of national debt and are coming off the back of 14, 15 years of extremely loose monetary, if not fiscal policy in this country. So what's interesting to me is that, like, I can see the way that austerity has sort of negatively impacted our societies um, in so many ways over this century. And yet it feels like if you airdropped a sort of theoretician of uh, austerity as a means of keeping together a particular social order from 1922 into 2022, they would think that they had failed tremendously because like it, it seems that in in spite of all of that, it has massively like the the shape and size and scale of the state has still changed hugely and the democratisation of society has changed hugely over that period of time
1: hmm. that's a that's an interesting read i would say that the capital order has i would almost say the opposite thesis in the sense that uh, chapter 10 of, which is the concluding chapter of the book uh tries to show how uh these um themes of austerity, especially the anti-democratization process of the economy so the and the need to protect the dials of macroeconomic management in the hands of the experts and fundamentally the drive towards constant privatization and deregulation of the labor market are actually quite constant throughout the 20th uh, century and I would say also in the new 21st century. I would say that what's interesting is to see that it's not uh, the state intervention in general that one has to consider, but the type of state interventionism. What is interesting for me is to look at how social intervention is constantly attacked. While, of course, the point is that austerity is about state intervention itself. So let me try to clarify. Austerity is not the state backing up. Austerity is the state taking on specific functions and increasingly the function of law and order to the detriment of social objectives. And I think this you can see, especially, of course, from the late 70s onwards. By the way, another moment, the early 70s, in which British workers had increased the wage share of the GDP, so had increased the amount of income that was going to get them rather than profits, a moment in which, with the winter of discontent, inflation had triggered greater demands for democratization of the economy. So in a moment in which the, say, capital was losing with respect to labor, um, from the 70s onwards, we've seen a constant wielding of austerity in British society with very few exceptions. And even if we look at, you know, the supposed COVID plans to try to actually refurbish economic growth, what you see is always the same thing that crumbs are giving to the people and the majority of economic incentives that the state is actively intervening to give are both in the form of quantitative easing and in the form of just financial aid is going to the savers, investors, to the corporate sector. So actually, I would almost say that if uh, in the, the, my protagonist of the 1920s looked at today, they would find that they had been tremendously effective in foreclosing alternatives to capitalism and having us all internalize that if we're poor, it's probably because we deserve it, because we're lazy. And if you're rich, it's probably because you deserve it. And you are the virtuous agent in our economic society.
0: Professor Matte, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much for having me on your show.
0: That was Clara Matte, whose book, The Capital Order, How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way to Fascism is available now from the University of Chicago Press. And listeners, thank you for joining us on The Bunker. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. Do follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you're able to, then you can get every edition of The Bunker early, plus merchandise and more, by supporting us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. John O'Farrell And me, Angela Barnes Wherever you get your podcasts The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ahir Shah The producers were Alex Rees and Jet Gerbertson with assistant production from Kasha Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Artwork is by James Parrott with music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.